This is Godly Parenting Part 2, Lesson Number 1, and we're calling it, What If You Only Get 13 Years? And that's very critical. Let me also stop and interject here. Over the next few weeks, as I finish up these lessons and prepare to teach them, if you have any questions or any subjects you'd like me to touch, email me or text me or just get it to me somehow, and I can kind of work it in to the curriculum. So I want to talk about this misnomer that we have to our kids are 18 which is a big lie, and we're going to look at why that's a lie. So I have a lot to cover here. In early Roman law, the age of majority, as opposed to the age of minority, the age of majority was set at the age in which an individual would have attained the intellectual abilities to, number one, exercise full citizenship, two, manage their affairs in life, and three, become parents and heads of home. And for ancient Rome, this was decided to be the age of 15 for males. Ancient Rome, the Roman Empire, the Pax Romana, the Caesars, uh, the Roman Empire, adults were adults at 15. We have 35-year-olds in our nation that still can't operate without mama's breast. So culture has greatly devolved. Early Europe, so you got to think about 1,500 years later, maybe less than that, 1,200 years later, early Europe decided age of, majority, age of majority based upon the ability to participate in warfare, also 15 years. When warfare techniques changed, so did the age of majority. When the metal armor necessary for knights and heavy cavalry were developed, the age of majority increased to 21, the age at which a male could be both strong enough and skilled enough in this form of warfare. So 21. So sometime in medieval Europe, uh, the age of majority culturally goes from 15, which it held since the Roman times, to 21, based solely on strength and the time it takes to learn metal armored warfare. Because of the fame and durability of the knighthood, its influence on the age of majority endured for centuries throughout much of the Western world. 21 remained the age of majority in America, from its inception, because we inherited that from Europe, until well into the 20th century when the need for more soldiers prompted Congress in 1942 to lower the age of military conscription from 21 to 18. <clears throat> now, the book of Numbers tells us that the age of conscription is 20. So if we were to do it biblically, the age of conscription should be 20. We have set it at 18 because we needed more meat for the grinder on the beaches of Normandy just to let you know why we do what we do. Plus, minus, positive, negative, it just is what it is. For nearly 30 years, the age of majority, 21, and the age of conscription, 18, stood in disparity. The age of taxation is also 20 uh, in the book of Exodus. So you can tell our government isn't too interested in following the Bible. Since the obligation of military service, uh, let me pause it. Why would you tax a 15-year-old? <laughs> I mean, they're making nothing anyway. Maybe to teach them to be used to a corrupt government and a corrupt IRS and a dysfunctional tax code. I don't know why you would tax them, but they do. Since the obligation of military service has always been linked to the right to political participation, i.e. voting, a change was imminent. That change took place in 1971 when the 26th Amendment was ratified, lowering the voting age from 21 to 18. And the argument was, um, I can't vote for you, you who send me off to die. That was kind of the argument. You, can, you guys conscript me, you guys uh, 
take me and throw me into the fields of Vietnam, but I can't even vote for the guy who's marching me off to my death. So that changed. This change took place in 1971. We read that. Now 18 has nearly universally been accepted as the age of majority throughout the world. The age of 18. And we have embraced that as Christians in our parenting. Now, the whole rest of my curriculum is going to prove what a misnomer that is and a, um, a false milestone. Because if you think you have till 18, you'll loaf until year 17. That's the human nature. If we knew where the cutoff point was, we'd wait to the last minute, as folks do with their taxes. If we think we have till 18, well, honey, we only have two more years. And I'm sorry, sweetie, if you think you've only got two more years, you lost it years ago. This is also why most American Christians have traditionally believed they, have, uh, they had 18 years to raise their kids, and you don't. We're asking the question this morning, what if you only have 13 years? I've thrown this concept at us over the last couple years when I uncovered it, began studying it, began writing this down several years ago, but it feels good now to teach it for the first time. If nothing else, this will cause us to tighten our parenting. Amen. 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 So Jewish tradition... The Jews, however, view things differently, as they almost always do. And that's why they're the oldest people on the planet. You can't find Egyptians with any links to Pharaoh anymore. You can't find Mayans with any link to the Mayan Empire anymore. You can't find Chinese with links to Chiang Kai-shek anymore. And this is the oldest. The Jews are the oldest people on the planet because they see things differently, beginning at the mountain of God in Exodus chapter 20. They view things differently, at least spiritually. Based on the Mishnah and the Babylonian Talmud, which were manually or written down, these are oral traditions that predated Christ, but they were finally written down in the 2nd and 5th century. The Jews hold that, the, that 13 is the age at which boys pass from spiritual dependency on ma, uh, father and mother to be a son of the law or son of obligation. So I'm going to throw at you 13, 13, 13. In the Jewish mindset, at 13 is when the son or the daughter was now spiritually independent of mom and dad and they had to walk with God for themselves. The religious celebration associated with this coming of age is called a bar mitzvah. And I think we've all heard that before. It means a son of the law or son of obligation. If we would adjust our standard to the age of 13, we would be a lot stricter and a lot more focused on how we are raising our children in the fear of and admonition of the Lord. If we realized we only had 13 years to do it, we would not waste our time dilly-dallying. Every time we came home, we would be spending time talking about something from the Bible, having some kind of Bible lesson, even if just for 15 or 20 minutes. I'm not saying come home from school and then you have a whole other school till it's dinner time. I'm not saying that. But you wouldn't waste your time with video games only and Barney only or The Wiggles only or Netflix only or YouTube. You would be discipling your children. As it stands, I'm sure Jews who are devout Jews, because there are secular Jews, but devout Jews probably look at the American church and say, this is why you guys are shrinking. Because you don't parent your kids and you don't disciple them. You bring them to church and you think that's sufficient. Bringing them to church is not sufficient enough. For girls, the age of majority 
is 12 years. Or said, they said it 12 years. Her coming of age celebration is called a bat mitzvah or a daughter of the law or daughter of obligation. This age marks a very critical stage in a child's life. The modern church would do well to observe and consider. So for the Jews, 12 to 13 represents the age at which the young people can control their desires. I know, well, I don't know if you guys knew this or not. I pastor. And I pastor some adults who can't control their desires. Food desires, sex desires, emotion desires, spending desires. The Jews thought by 13, you can do this. It represents the age at which the young people are responsible for their own walk with God. Prior to this age, they would not suffer for their own sins. At this age, they would be stoned for committing any capital crimes based on the Torah. Can you imagine stoning a 13-year-old? But the Bible does say in the book of Exodus, he that curseth his mother or father shall die. Well, mother or father, you're still at home. To curse doesn't mean blankety blank, blank, blank. It is to invoke a demonic curse upon someone. So apparently you could have a 13-year-old dabbling in witchcraft and trying to bring a hex upon their household. We view curses differently because we're Southerners and we have, our doctrine is horrible. But to curse means to pull down an imprecation upon someone. We think cursing is bad words. Bad words, dirty words, are what the King James calls filthy communication. Both are wicked. But simply saying, I hate you, mother, is not cursing your mother or father. It's being an emotional twit. Yes, sir. Amen. And you don't tolerate that in your household if you didn't know that. You spank them. I'm going to keep teaching spanking until they make it illegal. Amen. And then I'm going to teach it some more. We don't tolerate disrespect in our homes. We don't let anybody stay at home that disrespects our husband or our wife. We kick those people out. They've not earned the right. Even our homeless mission kicks out disrespectful people back onto the streets to be homeless again. Even in prison, when you're very disrespectful, they put you in solitary confinement. I don't know why some of you tolerate reprobates who are so rude and inconsiderate and won't do anything about it. You've proven to God he can't trust you with authority. Authority comes to bring peace. So bring it. Amen. Amen. All right. Prior to this age, uh, they would not suffer for their own sins. Prior to this age, they could, uh, they could uh, suffer for the sins of their parents. At this point, they would no longer suffer for the sins of the parents because now they've become independent spiritually, though they might still be dependent financially. At the bar mitzvah, the father recites a benediction. It says, blessed is he who is now freed from me from the responsibility of this one. Blessed is he who has now freed me. So the father rejoices. God, you have now freed me from the responsibility of this one. You guys think you have till 18 to be free. If you parent right, it should happen about 13. If you parent right. Uh, I say it here in a minute, but our nation is terrified of teenagers. We're terrified of teenagers because we know collectively we're horrible parents. And we know collectively and intuitively we're letting everything under the sun and from the pit of hell disciple our children but us. So therefore, we are terrified. I'm just afraid of when my kid gets to be a teenager. Why? Are you, you, you admitting already you're a horrible parent? You failed as a parent? You're a lazy parent? Shiftless parent? Is that what you're admitting already? I remind you of my story from South Africa and being on the game preserve. And they said, hey, you want to see some elephants? Yeah, who wouldn't want to see some elephants? All right, 
I'll radio the keeper and he'll walk them up here to us. And up comes this little Zulu man in rubber boots and a stick with three elephants taller than him by twofold. And he, they were walking up the ridge line, and one of them started to get out of the way. He just put his elbow into the elephant's front leg, and the elephant straightened up. And I asked the uh, Zulu elephant keeper, aren't you afraid of these elephants? I said, they could grab you by your leg and arm and rip you apart. He said, nonsense. I've raised them since they were babies, and I'm still bigger than them. It's a good parent. He wasn't afraid of grown elephants, and some of you are terrified of your teenager. And if a Zulu can parent an elephant, I think an adult can parent a child. But you got to wake up early to do it. Amen. Blessed is God who has now freed me from the responsibility of this one. <laughs> Hallelujah. Now, DCS may not see it that way, but at least God does. The father, excuse me, the young person's vows before God uh, now stand independently of their parents' approval. So now at 13 and 14, when a kid makes a vow, they're committed to it. You don't get to step up and say, hey, they're just a child. Amen. According to the law of Moses and the Jewish tradition, at 14, they start making commitments. They're bound to it. That should not scare you because you have trained them in what is responsible every step of the way. What we really have in America is a great dearth of parenting. Everybody likes making babies. Everybody likes holding babies. Nobody wants to raise the babies. Everybody wants to dress them up in Matilda Jane and all these ruffle butt stuff, but nobody actually wants to take the time to impart into them a soul that will please God. Everybody wants Instagram parenting, not biblical parenting. And that will be misery in your own soul and in your own home the rest of your life. This is the age of sexual maturity and reproduction, and therefore marriage is now an option. We know from history and tradition that Mary was probably 13 or 14 years old when Joseph was betrothed to her. This is very common for all of human history into the last 200 years. It's weird to us, and I don't disagree, but it might be weird to us because we know that we don't parent people to maturity until they're about 35 now. This standard is beyond foreign to Western civilization, including the church. So my job here this morning is to stretch you. I'm not saying we're going to betroth 13 and 14-year-olds. My goodness, no. Are they sexually productive and fertile? Yes. Are they capable of inseminating and having babies at 13 and 14? Yes. Are they mature enough to do anything but pick their nose and play on their smartphone? No. Not in today's culture. No. <laughs> Jesus coming of age. We see an allusion to this Jewish tradition in the life of Christ, Luke chapter 2. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover, and they gave Jesus the option of whether he would go with them or not. No, that's the American Christian. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to, they, because they're a family, and children don't have an option when they're in a family. Let, I'm, I can already feel the pastoring coming out of me. Where you guys all fail is you give your kids too many options, when most of the time you shouldn't give them any. The option is this, obey or stand by the paddle and then obey. Where I've watched our church fail in their parenting is by thinking they're being cool by giving their kids options. You don't give your kids options. Giving your kids options at the age they're at is like the transgender advocate saying, your kid can choose. 
There's certain things your kids never have a right to choose. You don't have to be rude about it, but when you give your kids too many options, they don't even know what to pick from the first place when it was only one option. You give them one option, they still don't know which one to pick because they're kids. <laughs> they went up to Jerusalem after the, after the custom of the feast. And when they, the whole family, had fulfilled the days as they returned, the child, he's 12 years old, but he's considered a child, the child Jesus tarried behind in Jerusalem, and Joseph and his mother knew not of it. And it came to pass that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the doctors, both hearing them and asking them questions. Now remember, he's the Christ child, but he's not Jesus Christ yet. He's not anointed yet. He's a boy. He's doing no miracles. He's learning. That's part of the, the mystery of Christ. The boy had to learn. The boy had to have his rear end wiped. The boy had to learn things. And he's hearing and asking questions. He's not asking questions to undermine them. He's asking questions to understand the law. In the Lord's day, the Jews held boys to a 12-year bar mitzvah. That changed into, um, by the time the Talmud and the Mishnah were written down, to a 13. But we see there's, a, there's this age in there, 12 or 13. We see here that by age 12, Jesus Christ had been trained up in the law, both asking the lawyers questions and hungry to hear them. This hunger was there because Joseph and Mary had raised Jesus according to the requirements of the law of Moses. Uh, I have harped in our church that your kids should know more than all the Ninja Turtles. They should know more than all the latest fashion and styles. I have harped against social media for 12 years now because I could see it was a greater force for discipleship than mom and dad. And I refuse to lay hands on people who live on social media for depression because I cannot compete against your discipler social media. It would destroy your faith if you fought depression because of your social media addiction. You came up front, I laid hands on you, you were delivered, and then you went back home on the way home and hopped on your Facebook feed to update. Just had hands laid on me, it's so wonderful. And by tomorrow morning, that demon's back on you again. It would destroy your faith for that kind of failure to take place. So I just have a rule. I don't lay hands on people who live on social media. I will not do it for depression. Now, if you want healing, sure. If you want wisdom, sure. But I can tell you without laying hands on you, get off social media. There's your wisdom. Jesus was a boy who was hungry for the law of God because he was raised up under the law of God. And when that's all you know, you're hungry for more of it. Our kids are bored with church because they're full of everything else. Just like mama said, don't eat anything. You'll ruin your appetite. Dinner's in an hour. Don't eat anything. You'll ruin your appetite. Please, just one snack. And so folks come to church and they're not hungry because they're full of everything else. Old Testament parenting. While preparing Israel to enter the promised land, Moses exhorts God's people to teach their children the Bible because even a child is known by his doings. So we can judge children. There are such things as bad kids. And you can usually see it by one and a half. Yes, you nursery workers testify, you toddler workers. Amen. Even in this church, you mean you can look in our bed babies and you can see uh, little tots, you can see bad kids. Yes, yeah, you women are nodding your head. Yeah. And you think, I wish I had permission to wear this kid's bum out. <laughs> Amen. Even a child is known by his doings, whether his work be pure and whether it be right. So that kind of tells us God wants our kids to be able to be pure and right, which means children have the ability to be pure.
pure and right. Deuteronomy 4.9 says, Only take heed to yourself and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things which your eyes have seen, lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. But teach them thy sons and thy sons' sons. So we here have a grandparenting mandate. So for those of you that are grandparents, understand there's a biblical mandate for you to do some part in discipling your grandchildren. That requires you to be around them some of you treat grandkids almost like a hobby. I've had my hour. Now go away. I'll see you again in six weeks. This commandment from the law of God says you teach them to your sons and then your son's sons. It doesn't say you teach them to your son, then your son will teach them to your grandson. It tells the grandfather or the grandmother, your job is to keep discipling. And you got to figure out what that looks like in your family. Some of you are estranged from your kids and your grandkids. I understand that. The best you can do is probably pray. But if you have access to your grandkids, why are you not teaching them the things of God? We teach you how to do it. If you serve in the back, you know exactly how to minister to children. It doesn't have to be a two-hour evangelistic conference. It can just be, hey, grandson, let me tell you about the time the Lord healed old Papa here. Papa, I've heard this story a hundred times. Good. This will be one-on-one. <laughs> That's Old Testament parenting. You keep talking about the things of God, and you keep talking about the things of God. We tell our kids some of our testimonies, and I like it because now they're starting to sound like Gideon. Well, God healed you this, and God healed you that, and you saw this miracle? Yeah. Why haven't we seen any? I said, oh, you sound like Gideon. That sounds biblical to me. There's a hunger there. There's a hunger. I'm creating a hunger. My kids are upset. They haven't seen testimonies like we have. Well, number one, you've only been on this planet eight years. <laughs> number two, you yourself were a miracle. Just keep playing this game with us. Keep walking with us. We'll see them. We'll see the miracles again. Amen. The Deuteronomy 6 Commission, part of the law of Moses, contained the wisdom of God for parenting and producing disciples out of children. Your kids must be your best disciples. Don't forget that the first commandment concerning morality, the fifth commandment, concerns family and parenting. Children are to honor their father and mother, but who is expected to teach them that honor? The child's father and mother. Therefore, the fifth commandment is actually a law regarding proper parenting. So the Ten Commandments involves parenting. But you know, for those heretics, they like to say, well, we're delivered from the law. And that may be why your kids grow up and go to hell, mega preacher. Deuteronomy 6, 6-7 says, And these words which I command you this day shall be in your heart. That might also explain why we don't disciple our children because we don't have a heart full of God's word compelling us to do it. If you love your wife and your kids more than anything on earth and your heart is full of the word of God, how could you not teach them the Bible? Except there's just some false assumption that they're going to get it just by being around me. They're not going to get it just by being around you. They're going to get how to talk. They're going to get how to walk. They're going to get how to respond because they're just watching that lived out. But you have to sit them down and teach them the Word of God. You have to sit down and teach them the law of Moses and the law of the New Testament. You've got to teach them how to apply the law and the Word of God to everything in their life. You have to look for teachable moments, which if you're breathing, happen about 50 times a minute. And your kids should be able to tell you, you make everything a Bible study. Absolutely. That's how this life works. 
And thou shalt teach them diligently unto your children. Teach them diligently, not half-heartedly, not expecting the Sunday school teacher to do it, not expecting the youth leaders to do it. You Amen. teach your children diligently. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house. So maybe you should sit down and talk about the things of God. And when you walkest by the way, you're going to talk about them. And when you liest down, you're going to talk about them. When you wake, wake up, you talk about them. So there should be morning prayers probably over breakfast. And there should be probably dinner prayers and prayers at bedtime. You should be praying with your children, not just for them. Amen. You should see that your children ought to be your best disciples. They should have everything you have before they're 10 years old spiritually. They should get faith. They should get dominion. They should get doctrine. With all of our technology, they ought to be able to watch the whole Bible on video animated by 100 different animation studios, getting 1,000 different doctrinal perspectives. And they ought to know the book of Ruth better than you did before you were 49. Amen. 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 <laughs> Otherwise, we're lazy. Yes, and we're going to lose our kids. And some of your children will go to hell. It's just how it's going to be. It doesn't have to be. Amen. But it will be. Because there will always be a weak link. There will always be the lazy, negligent parent. And for all my preaching, there will always be somebody who just says, well, that was good preaching. Man, I was convicted. I don't care if you're convicted. I want to see you hop. Amen. So hop. <laughs> Parents are to teach their children the word of God at home while they are traveling around town as they lay, are laying them down for bed and first thing in the morning. Deuteronomy 6 is the Torah's golden rule for parenting. You can also look at Deuteronomy 11. Now let's look at the 78th Psalm. I call this one the Parenting Manifesto. And I've purposely underlined the generations that keep appearing in this song. Kylie, could we ever write a song about biblical parenting? Because here the 78th Psalm is a song about how to parent God's kids. Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. So there's parenting. Our fathers told us, and I'm writing you a song about it. So there's the third generation that's getting it. We will not hide them from their children. So there's two generations right there. We're going now beyond our fathers. Now it's not just us, it's our children. Showing to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works that he hath done. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers, there's the first generation, that they should make them known to their children. That's the present generation. That the generation to come, there's the third generation, might know them, even the children which should be born. So now those that haven't even been born yet. Grandfather and son are preparing the law of God, the testimonies of God, the workings of God, the miracles of God, and they can't wait to tell the kids that haven't even been born yet. Hallelujah. Who should arise and declare them to their children. Now we have a fourth generation. Now, if the church had stuck with this, I don't think we'd see the American church contracting and shrinking like it is. Because we'd be looking forward to the fourth generation. If you're a grandparent, you better be looking forward to the fourth generation. And how are you going to get the word of God into them? Brother Sumrall made a horrible observation, accurate but horrible. He said, a vision only lasts three generations. The one that gets it, the one they hand it to, and the one that loses it. And his own testimony is his grandkids barely have it, his sons lost it, and he was really the only one that ran with it. One of his grandsons is a stark heretic denying Christ and is a universalist now. One of his sons 
died prematurely in sin. Another one of his sons struggled with alcohol. And the third son was run off from his daddy's ministry for being clean. So you have an uphill battle at hand. And he parented his kids before the internet, before social media. He raised them on the mission field. Do you think those boys would have caught the vision a little deeper and a little harder? And here we are raising them under TikTok and public schools and transgender ideologies. And you think you can just kind of flippantly bring them to church once every two weeks and they're going to get it? No. That the generation to come might know them, even the children which should be born, who should arise and declare them to their children. That's the fourth generation. That they, the fourth generation, might set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments and might not be as their fathers. So you mean we're supposed to be getting better every generation? Of course I am. I hope my kids go further. I hope they have a better marriage. I hope they preach the gospel harder. I hope they enjoy everything more than I can. That's how I know I'm a success. Some of you are weird in that you get jealous when your children succeed. You're a weirdo, and you're selfish and perverse and immature. She calls a parent's heart to delight to see their kids better than them, make more money than them, love God more, have a better marriage, be promoted by God. Don't be like their fathers, a stubborn, rebellious generation, a generation that set not their heart aright and whose spirit or attitude was not steadfast with God. So Psalm 78, 1 through 8, I call that the parenting manifesto because it thinks four generations ahead. It's pretty good. That's better than Marka. Marka can't even think past the weekend. I mean, if we got good vision, it might be vacation. But a generation? No, I'm just trying to hook up with somebody this weekend. <laughs> but, and then get back to the church so I can be on the worship team Sunday morning. These opening eight verses provide a beautiful outline for the plan and purpose of godly parenting. Number one, talk about the law, the word of God with your children. Your children should hear and know the word of God because of you. They should not know the word of God because of our teachers. Amen. Thank God we have wonderful teachers, wonderful Sunday school teachers. We pray for them. They're anointed. We have very strict curriculum. But they should know, your children should know the word of God because of you. If you're a parent and you're not currently doing a Bible study with your kids, what's your excuse? If you have little ones in your home, and by little ones I mean they're like 18 and at home, and you're not doing a weekly Bible study with them, what's your excuse? You don't have time? Make time. Or make time for, I don't know, custody battles and juvenile detention. Be prepared to raise your grandkids. Now, if you have to raise your grandkids, God bless you, God help you, God make his face to shine upon you. Those kids need somebody to love them, yes, sir. but apparently their parents don't. So that even, even raising your grandkids becomes a testimony and a witness against you. We have to say the hard things. I don't mean to beat anybody up because we do have grandparents raising their grandkids, but... You looking at those grandkids does become a witness against you. Some of you are humble. You say, I messed up. I wasn't even saved back then. Amen. Praise God and commend your humility. But others of you, you still making excuses like, well, no, we did it right. If you do it right, you don't raise your grandkids. Right. You're not anointed to. Amen. Well, meant to. Unless their parents went off to war and were both killed or they were killed in a car accident and something horrific happened. But the horror shouldn't have taken place while you were parenting the kids. 
that raised the kids that became the grandkids that you have to parent. That shouldn't be the horror. Number two, don't hide the word of God from your children. Talk about it. If they ask questions, why did God destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? Tell them, because they're a bunch of perverts that hated God. What do you mean pervert, daddy? Well, you know how mommy and daddy kiss on each other? Yeah, these were men kissing on each other. Ooh, thank you, sweetie. You are so brilliant. Number three, show the generations to come, your children and grandchildren, the praise, the strength, and wonderful works of God. I'm of a conviction that every household should have a testimony book. Get a giant leather, a fancy leather journal and write down your testimonies. Maybe document them as you're going through them because you know God's going to turn it. Maybe while you're still sharp enough, go back and rewrite your whole biography. Don't worry about vacations. Write down the testimonies. God healed your mother of this, and God healed daddy of this, and we almost lost you when you were a baby, and we had to believe God for you to, get, uh, to be conceived. The doctor said we couldn't conceive you, and then here you came, and that was a testimony. And One time we didn't have money, and somebody came and said, God told us to give you this money. Write down your testimonies and rehearse them with your kids so they know your own testimony. Remember that fathers are commanded to share their testimonies and laws of God with their children. Five, uh, and they, the second generation, to share them with their children. The third generation. And the third generation to share them with their children. The fourth generation. By doing so, the children will have their hopes set in God, not elsewhere, remembering the works of God and keeping his commandments. This is what provoked Gideon to become a great man of God. He said, I keep hearing all these stories. Why don't I see them? How, even with a backslidden nation, they still talked about what God had done. And that testimony built a faith in this young Manassite that said, or Danite, that said, no, it was a Manassite, that said, where's, where's, the, where's the God of our fathers? Where's the God of all these stories I keep hearing about? And it caused an angel to come appear to him and say, you're next. But if they never hear our stories, and we're the ones that lived through the revival of the 80s and 90s, we're the ones that saw legs grow out and blind eyes open and, and deaf hear and what have you. How would they know that this, these things are real? We've got to talk about them. Well, it's not normal in my home. Well, that's because you're weird. Make it normal in your home. Start a new tradition in your home. Kids don't know anything but what they know. And what they know, they know because of you. So make it. Eight, by doing so, the children will be better than their fathers, lacking stubbornness, rebellion, an evil heart, and an unstable attitude. You only get 13 years, and you've got to make sure you do the most with it. The Proverbs promise, I would say the most misused, misapplied, misquoted Proverbs promise. One final verse from the Old Testament will help us to understand how Joseph and Mary would have raised Jesus Christ in preparation for his bar mitzvah. Proverbs 22, 6 says, Train up, inaugurate, discipline a child in the way he should go. And when he is old and has backslidden, he will come back because you drug him to Sunday school. No. What's the promise? He'll never depart. This is always quoted after the child has backslidden. And I think it should be observed, if the child backslid, you didn't do this verse. Because the promise is, if you inaugurate them in the things of God and discipline them in the things of God, they'll never depart. That's the promise. But I've heard so many heartbroken parents whose kids are off fornicating, doing drugs, playing the fool. Oh, I raised them up right. When they're old, they'll not depart. They'll come back. They're coming back because when they're old, they won't depart. Like, whoa, 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 whoa. 
They've, they've departed. We're, we're, we're having this meeting because they're gone. So find a better verse for your situation because this ain't it. This is not applied here. You missed that ship. It's gone. Find a better verse. How about the backslider and ways shall be backslider and heart shall be filled with his own ways. How about Lord make them miserable? How about Lord make them come to their own senses and their manure and pig pen? Let them come to their senses and come home to father's house. Quit using this to make you look like the big, the good parent you weren't. This verse is often erroneously invoked by Christians after their grown child backslides. It's impossible for children to backslide at home because they're living under your home. It's really simple. Rule them with an iron rod like the Lord will in the millennial reign. They can't backslide if they're under your roof unless you're a horrible person. You control the decisions if they're dependent on your mortgage and your food and your gas and your light. I don't get this lie that I just can't control my kid. Well, then they're controlling you. Somebody's controlling somebody here. You can control them. You're just too lazy to do so. Lock them down or kick them out. Those are your two options. Every parent has had to look at their child and say, I run the show here. You're a child. When you're ready to be an adult, you can get out with all your stuff, go pay your rent, go buy your car. But until then, when I finance everything, I own you. I one time kicked a hole in our wall because I got mad at my brother and my dad. He all but yanked me out of my bed naked. I had underwear on. Well, he didn't yank me out of bed. But I remember him. It's a back right bedroom. He said, boy, I own everything you own. I gave it to you. And he said... <laughs> And you've kicked a hole in my wall. And if I so will it, you will live on the back porch buck naked till I decide you can come in. And he meant it. It wasn't cheap talk. He was mad. He was southern mad, like farmer mad. But I remember he said, if I so will it, you will live buck naked on the back deck. And that was before we finished in the back deck and it had a roof over it. Because <laughs> they did that later. <laughs> there was going to be no out of alignment. I'm under his roof. Even employers get this. You act up, they kick you out. Some of you got to realize at some point you cut off your prodigals so they don't go to hell. But I'm convinced some of you, because you're ignoramuses, I'm calling you a lot of names this morning. I'm aware it's burning pretty hard in me. You will be the reason your child goes to hell because you will help them. You will fund them and you will not do the biblical mandate that will cause repentance. You claim you love your kids and I believe you do, but you don't know how to because you're too emotionally American. If you're going to serve God, it requires hard decisions and eternities longer. Amen. The logic goes something like this with this misapplied verse. Well, I raised him or her in the house of God. I know they'll come back to God. They have to. I trained them up in the way that they should go. Proverbs promises that if we train our child up properly, they will never depart. Not they will return if they leave. We get 13 years to perform, uh, to perform that training and discipline. 13 brief years to inaugurate our children into the kingdom of God. So we got to ask the question, why only 13 years? It seems like it's unfair. It only seems unfair because you've been an American your whole life and you think 18 or 21 is the age of accountability. Now think about this church. We have this doctrine of the age of accountability. We don't know where it is. We ballpark it maybe four years to eight years. Maybe, maybe it's eight years to 10 years. I don't know. We believe in uh, free will, so we're not Calvinists around here. So we believe you have a choice. But if we believe in the age of accountability, 
And we believe at some point a child denounces law and rebels against mom and dad, lies, cheats, steals, cusses, some kind of act of egregious rebellion, that they die spiritually. We also believe that that child will go to hell. I believe that. It's hard to stomach, but I believe it. That means God does not have a problem in his justice condemning a 10-year-old to hell. Now, obviously, he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But even a child is known by his ways. So if God, in his righteous, holy justice, will send a nine-year-old to hell because they rebelled and died spiritually when they were seven years old and never got born again, you and I think our kids get another 12 years to grow up in their head? We think we have till they're 18 when God will send a 10-year-old to hell? Think about it. Think about that contrast. If you believe the age of accountability is eight, that's when you must be born again, or nine or 10. And at 10 years old, if they were to die tragically in a car accident or leukemia or something horrific, they would go to hell. But you and I think, oh no, my kid has another 10 years to grow up. God's saying they're able to understand, comprehend, and obey the law of God by seven, eight, nine, 10 years old. God is not babying our teenagers. We are, and we're ruining them. I'm not talking about being mean. I'm just talking about being real and being a discipline, a disciplinarian, a disciple maker. Why only 13 years? Well, other than the biblical pattern already set forth, neuroscience and childhood psychology tell us many fascinating facts. We learn 90% of everything we will ever learn by the age of 10. Language, basic physics, science, family, culture, math, 90%. Now, there's a lot to still learn, but think about You go zero to 10 years old. You go from being a cooing, crying baby to my my daughter Lydia is 10 years old. She does backflips and back tucks. She does math. She can quote John chapter 1 in Latin. She's a sharp kid. It's a lot to learn in 10 years. The rest of her life, she'll spend learning another 10%. A child's personality is pretty well set by 13. We can testify to that as pastors and youth leaders. By the time they're 13, that's pretty much how their personality is going to be the rest of their life. You can change it if you want, but it's really hard. It takes a lot of discipleship and determination. Our brains reach their largest size between 11 and 14 years old. It's when it stops growing. In this stage, the brain is very plastic, meaning it can change, adapt, and learn readily. So even the neuroscience lines up with this. So we got to stop making excuses for our kids and deceiving ourselves and saying, well, they're they're 13. We just hit the teenage years. I've only got five more years. No, honey, at 13, you're done. Now you invest a lot to get a little return. Prior to that, you could invest a little and get a lot. So what would happen if between one and 13, you invested a lot? The teenage years are often greatly feared by parents, but this need not be the case. Teenagers are nothing more than children, which with higher mechanical skill levels than five-year-olds. Rebellious and disrespectful teenagers were rebellious and disrespectful at five years old. Don't wait until your child is a mechanically inclined, socially capable, hormone-driven teenager before you begin discipling and parenting them. It will be too late by then, and a child left to himself bringeth his mother to shame. And the shame won't stop once they move out. Not at all. It keeps washing up on every shore like red tide. 
So let's say some harder things if we hadn't already been pretty punchy this morning. I really had a great conference this past week. I was so excited to come back. I was excited to just teach this, but we're not teaching it this morning. We're preaching it. Thank you. So let's look at a couple points here. Lazy, carnal, aimless, excuse-filled parents will only half-parent their children. Everybody acknowledges the problem with our culture is parenting. And every generation, we have, we have probably 12 or 13 educators in our church. They all tell me the same thing. It's getting worse every year. So now we have 12 and 13-year-olds having sex. 80, 80% of 13-year-olds have had sex. What? Where'd you learn that? Where was your parent? Why do you have a smartphone? Half-parented children grow up to be lazy, carnal, aimless, excuse-filled adults, also called duds. A lazy, carnal, aimless, excuse-filled adult, a dud, cannot be expected to attract and marry a disciplined, successful Christian visionary. They will have to settle for someone of their caliber, another lazy, carnal, aimless, excuse-filled adult, another dud. So you raise your kid to be a dud. They're going to draw and attract a dud. And now what will become of your grandkids? They will be duds, if not twofold more the child of dud. A marriage comprised of lazy, carnal, aimless, excuse-filled adults will not succeed at much of anything in life, but they will probably have children, and those children will be parented by lazy, carnal, aimless, excuse-filled parents. And the cycle continues, but like an old satellite's decaying orbit, each revolution brings catastrophe ever closer. And the way you put it into this is typically the death of a parent and let the kid be picked up by somebody else. And that's a horrible second-class decision or destiny, but it's often the only way to break the cycle. I believe in premier plan A. I'm not looking for second class, second best. I want what's God's best from get-go to finish line. And it takes a lot of work and a lot of discipline and a lot of grace of God to get there. Or you can just go with the flow and let your kids be trannies by the time they're five. Let them be lesbians at 12 because of their social media friends. Let them have purple stripes in their hair. Something wrong with girls with rainbow color hair. Something carnal and sensual about it. <laughs> you didn't learn that from the kingdom. You learned that from somebody outside the church. Because holy people don't look like a clown. And I'm not going to let my kids look like a clown. Because they're not clowns. All right, feel pretty good. You look pretty beat up. Some of you are like, thank God my kids are grown and gone. Some of you are like, I'm single. I don't know if I want to be married now. The rest of you are thinking, oh, Lord, have mercy. That's a good attitude to have. We pray, Lord, don't let us mess up with our kids. Show us how to parent them each differently. They all have different needs. One thing about parenting, if you mean business, it will bring you to your knees readily. Oh, God, help me with my oldest. Oh, God, help me with my middle child. Oh, God, I don't know what to do with this young boy. What, Lord? Help me. We need your wisdom, Lord. I don't want to fail you. I don't want to see him go to hell. Children, help your prayer life if you had one to begin with. Maybe they'll spark one if you didn't have one. Amen. Father, we thank you for this first lesson on godly parenting. The time is even more dire than it was when we wrote these first lessons 10 years ago. Help us, Lord, to parent these kids for your glory, that they might be the fourth generation 
that sees greater things than we've ever known. Father, help our young parents. May they be emboldened and full of God and the Holy Ghost and the wisdom to raise these kids up to finish this, this age and see your return. In Jesus' name, amen.